Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 53 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. I'm Rod Murray, and on this episode, we'll talk a bit of US Masters as the year's first major rapidly approaches, talks about a European and Australian tour merger. That's one that's going to grab our interest. We'll probably chat about Rory McIlroy, the club toss, Tiger Woods, a few other bits and pieces. Hasn't really been planned out particularly well, so let's just bring in my co-hosts, as always, from the US, blogger, critic, author, Golf Channel super celebrity, Jeff Shackelford. Shaq, good to have you aboard today. Interested to get your thoughts on anything and everything to do with the game of golf. Thank you, Rod. It's been an interesting few weeks in golf, so I think we'll, uh, even though we have no structure to this, we'll we'll uh, manage to find some good things to talk about. As as always, Shaq, generally there's an intro, and that's about the only structure. We didn't even get that today, which is my fault. From here in Australia, <laughs> on the back of some tournament golf of his own on the local version of the Senior Tour, columnist, analyst, course critic, and designer Michael Clayton. Clayton's looking forward to hear about some of your tournament golf you've played in the last week or so, including the foursomes with a pretty high-profile playing partner. Don't mention his name. We'll, uh, we'll come to that in a moment. Uh, yes, right. Thank you. Yeah, it's been fun on the Moynton Peninsula. Yeah, a place as usual. It's a. I should really come and live here. I live in the city, but I'm not quite sure why I don't live down here. Uh, yeah, well, the sea changes all the range, Clates. So you might as well. They make a reality TV show about it for you. Now, before we get started today, Clates, I did want to say to you, and Shaq, you might not know about this. I wanted to say congratulations. You were inducted into the Victorian Golf Hall of Fame along with a bunch of others earlier this week. Bruce Green from Royal Melbourne and whatnot. So I just wanted to say congratulations. I know you're not big for the awards and stuff, but I think it's. There's a lot of people don't agree with you, as you know, but nobody could question your dedication and commitment to the game, and I think that going into the Victorian Golf Hall of Fame is a nice recognition of that. So congratulations from me, and I'm sure Shaq as well. Yes, right. Yeah, the, there should be two categories in the Victorian Golf Hall of Fame, with Peter Thompson in one and the rest in the... <laughs> down below. In, in fact, there should be three categories. There should be Peter Thompson, then Bob Shearer, then... The rest. <laughs> the rest, which I suppose is the thing where you, uh, you fit in. But no, mate, you have made a wonderful contribution to the game. So uh, good on you for that and congratulations. Clay, so I'm going to stick with you because I mentioned there you played in the Victorian Legends Tour foursomes at St Andrews Beach earlier this week with a high-profile player. That was, of course, Ian Baker-Finch down at St Andrews Beach. Tell us about that. I had a quick look at the results. I think you finished in a share of fourth, but that would have been an interesting day. Foursomes as a professional, it's almost unheard of, isn't it? It's, it's a hard game for them because you never get really much rhythm. And if you play well, you you seemingly play well. But if you get off on the wrong, or, or, or if you get on a bad run, it's harder to stop it in foursomes than it is when you're playing on your own. It's, it's a tricky game, but it was it's great fun and, and it's quick. It's a, I mean, the Scots like it, I think, because they can play quickly and get back into the clubhouse in a couple of hours. It was good fun. We played with Terry Price and Tim Elliott, who play well, and course was good and. It, it was a tough day, but of course we played for copious amounts of prize money. We actually played for our entry fee, so fourth place earned no money. That's right. So it's the only professional tournament in the world where you finish fourth and make nothing from it. Oh, dear. But that's okay. It was a fun day, and Bob Shearer played with Roger Davis, so that so was a that legend. That legend, sir, I noticed Baker Finch has just walked out once he realised he was getting no money for finishing fourth <laughs> the other day. <laughs> And fair enough, too. Um, uh, it, that Legends Tour, though, Clates, there's some really interesting and good players that people could go on. It's actually developed into quite something quite good, hasn't it? I mean, Terry Price, there's some guys who can play in those fields. Well, we played at Ports yesterday. We had Roger Davis played, Bob Shearer. Mike Harwood Mike, won it. Steve Baker Finch, Terry Price, Peter Fowler. So Mike Harwood. Mike Harwood played. So they went through the list of mm. tournaments the guys have won. It's something like, I don't know, 30 tournaments in Europe and... Obviously, a British Open and you know, tournaments in America. So, 
and a whole part of big Australian events. So good players, mm. and it's, I mean, there is no commercial reality in running a senior tour really anywhere. But it's fun, and it's fun for the guys to get back out and compete again and catch up with each other. And obviously, with Ian playing, everyone appreciates him coming. It's a big deal for the sponsor who mm. had to play with him yesterday. So not too often you get to play with an Open champion in a pro am. Almost. If you're a golf fan of a certain age, Clade, so I would think it would be a fantastic thing to go along and watch some of these tournaments. It's free entry. You get to walk the fairways close to the players. It would be a wonderful spectating experience, I would imagine. It is, but you don't see any spectators there. That's right. That's, uh, that's well, maybe they, the, the, the children were being protected from any potential post-shot commentary from, from you. Is that, is that a possibility? <laughs> There's a possibility. Trace's reputation is well earned, but uh, I think he's mellowed in his uh, in his most recent. Oh, just, okay. Uh, on that topic, how is uh, how is Finchie's game, Clay? So you, as you said, the two of you finished fourth in the foursomes. How's he playing? Finchie's game is pretty good. Mm. It's very good. I mean, he mm. plays as much golf as I do. Really, I know. He and I are two of the rare beasts to seek out golf courses and play golf courses during the year. So. I'm keeping a count this year. I'm, I'm noting in my computer how many games of golf I play, how many courses I play. So, What are you up to? I've played, I don't know how many games I've played, but I've played 16 courses this year already, which seems probably a lot by March. I mean, most people probably haven't played 16 different courses in two months. But Mate, There are golf addicts out there who wouldn't have played 16 rounds yet for the year, and I'll be very envious of you because you don't play bad golf courses, do you? You once told me you don't have time. So they'd all be good courses. No, well, I played a couple of bad ones, but yeah. mostly good. Yeah, I don't. I was too short to play bad golf yeah, courses. Right? Exactly. Well, fantastic to have it on the Hall of Fame and fantastic to have it on the, the Legends swing, and uh, good to hear you and Finchie having a good time. And then on to matters of, on a somewhat bigger stage, Shaq, being down here in Australia, I was surprised to read on your website about talks of, well, I think merger might be a bit strong or not a popular term with those in here, but the European Tour and the PGA Tour of Australia are apparently having talks about I suspect a co-sanctioning arrangement with the tournaments. This one broke overseas. We didn't hear anything about it down here until I saw it on your site. Uh, right. Derek Lawrence of the Daily Mail broke that news and said players have already been briefed about the possibilities of uh, what sounds like it'll be a partnership. He used the word merger, which some people probably felt was a little strong. Um, but we have, I believe we've even talked about it on, on this mm-hmm. show, that it seems like that trio of events uh, w- was ripe for a, a merging with the European Tour because it's a time of year they don't have much going. They're, they're great events that could get better. There's room to make them better. There is room to make them um, more appealing to American audiences because uh, there's, there's n- not a lot going on and there is something magical about watching golf in Australia at night here at a time of year when it's winter time, and, and at least for some of us, uh, the ratings aren't huge. But if you add a few more players and things like uh, we've seen the last few years, it seems like there's some potential for sponsors there to have some uh, very, very nice weeks. Hmm. Well, of course, the European Tour have seven events co-sanctioned in South Africa, so they're certainly open to that idea. In fact, I, I don't know that there's actually much European Tour golf played in Europe uh, anymore. Clay's from the <laughs> <laughs> it's true, isn't it? There's virtually no golf yes. in England, is there? I think there's three tournaments left in England. No, and that's a even tax issue. Yeah. They've just revived the British Masters this year, which which makes that with the British PGA the second tournament there is in England. In England, there you go. It's yeah. staggering to think that there are two 
tournaments on the European Tour in England. In England, yeah, which, well, certainly 30 years ago that wasn't the case, was it? From a player's perspective, Clates, this European Tour and Australian Tour thing, for the European Tour players, what would they be sort of thinking about that? And for the Australian Tour players, what would they be sort of thinking? What would, what would be the, the feeling amongst players about this? I imagine it'll be an idea where they co-sanction the three major events down here. Well, it's a great thing for the Australian players because it gives them a chance to earn cards in Europe. Mm-hmm. So that obviously you're going to play really well to win, but I mean, I don't know how many tournaments they're going to do. There are the Open, the PGA, the Masters, and the Perth International. There are two reasonable tournaments in New Zealand. The New Zealand Open was last week for I think they played for a million dollars, so not terrible. So there's a chance to perhaps do more than four events. South Africa have seven. It's a great entree to the European Tour for the local guys who win there. You know, it would be a mistake to think that Rory McIlroy is going to come and play or. Justin Rose or Lee Westwood, unless you pay them a lot of money, but would certainly enhance the fields here. Would there be any appeal in Ryder Cup points? Perhaps you might flum a sort of high-profile player who's struggling for Ryder Cup points. I suppose occasionally in Ryder Cup years might uh, might stick an Australian event on the schedule. But generally speaking, Australian fans wouldn't be looking forward to watch, wouldn't be expecting to watch Westwood and Rose and those guys, would they? They're not the players who'll turn up. No, unless you pay them. Yeah, and significant um, amounts. As you're saying. We've always been we've always been pretty good at paying people, so yeah. yeah. Did we? Inv- I don't know. If we invented it, but we certainly have perfected it down here. But it's the problem with golf in Australia, isn't it, Clates? Because we're so far away, um, you kind of have to pay these guys to come here. It's usually a one week deal, and there's no other real incentive to come here unless you happen to be a lover of golf and there's a tournament on at Royal Melbourne which you really want to play at. Yeah, I always thought playing at Royal Melbourne would be great practice for playing at Augusta, but. Mm. The last time Seve won at Augusta was the last time he played at Royal Melbourne. He never won after he stopped playing at Royal Melbourne. But you couldn't get better greens to um, practice putting on for playing at Augusta because they're exactly the same greens. So in that sense, it would be an interesting place to go and work on something. But look, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a long way away and the money's not great. And they always moan about having to – they take 40% tax out of their cheque before they even see it. So there are a lot of disincentives for coming down here, except that it's a great place to play golf, great tournaments. Right, you know, normally terrific courses and good crowds, good crowds and yeah. people who understand golf. Yep, and the weather's fantastic too. Laura Davies often comes in here and plays in a series of one-day pro-ams on the local ALPG tour at, you know, suburban courses in Sydney because, as she said to me this year, have you seen the weather back home? Yeah. <laughs> I'm better off here playing playing golf than sitting at home watching the snow and ice building up outside. So it'll be interesting to see what uh, what happens with that, uh, Clades. It's always been a sensitive issue because, of course, for the Australian players, what you give up is about half the spots in the field. So for yeah. the less high-profile Australian players, that can be this is their one chance every year to sort of shine on a bigger stage, and many of those players will miss out if you co-sanction with Europe, and, that, and that's but an issue for them. It's a bigger question, but a part of the problem in Australia is there are too many guys who turn pro who really aren't good enough to make a living now. Mm-hmm. And discouraging them from doing that and encouraging a career. People don't see amateur golf as a career in golf now, playing amateur golf. That's a pity. That obviously, it's not a career in the sense it's making money out of it, but there are no career amateurs anymore. and there's no, Kids don't see amateur golf as a career in golf anymore. You know, I, I think if you discouraged kids from turning pro who, who don't have any chance to make a living, that would not be a bad thing for amateur golf in Australia and golf in general and, and, and certainly their lives because it's a miserable existence out there, not making any money. So I'm not sure that losing spots would be a bad thing because it might make more kids think about 
not trying it when they're truly not good enough to do it. Now, there's an interesting take. What do you think about that, Shaq? I mean, the, the more money there is in the game, the more kids are going to have a go, aren't they? And I suppose the difficulty is Ian Poulter might have been one who you would have said, Clates, some years ago, it's, you're not you're not going to make it as a pro, don't do it. And yet he has. What do you reckon, Shaq? Is there, do too many kids turn pro as the money in the game gets bigger and bigger? Well, how can you? You can't blame them. Uh, we have the same issue going on in um, other college sports here, especially basketball. And um, I, you know, absolutely, I don't I don't blame them when you have uh, somebody offer you an amount of money before you even tee up a ball. And uh, there really is not the prestige of being a, a career amateur here anymore. Uh, I've always been uncomfortable with that anyway because you. Uh, there, there's always been sort of an aristocratic element to it here. I don't know how that's been elsewhere, but you know the USGA types um, have always sort of. Uh, there's always been that element of the the the, the Buddy Maruchis and these career amateurs are are uh, who are more noble because they chose a career of playing amateur golf and working in business and shunning the the pro game, which is I guess left over from the days of Walter Hagen and really from the early days of, of golf here but I've always so I've always been sort of put off by the 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 notion um but, but there's uh, never been that never happened in Australia I understand no. everything in America but that was never the case in Australia the career am in Australia in Australia they always had jobs they weren't necessarily wealthy guys but they played amateur events and big amateur events and it was and it was a it was a great way to pass the knowledge and we learned a lot from a guy like Kevin Hartley and Tony Gresham were the best two players in Australia in the 60s, 70s, and early 80s. And they were tremendous mentors and, and helps to people. But but the, the, there was certainly none of that aristocratic, wealthy sort of – plus it seemed in America they parlayed their amateur career into jobs selling insurance or cars or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, but that was never the way amateur golf was in Australia. These were normal guys who had normal jobs who just saw well. – Amateur golf was a you know a big part of the it was a big part of their golf life was playing big tournaments. Now you, you just don't see those players anymore. It's a competition amongst twenty year old kids or who all want to be golf pros. And Bobby Jones, if uh, he tried to do today what he did when he was an amateur uh, in his post amateur career, um, uh, it just wouldn't fly. People would immediately declare you a professional, and and uh, which he. He, uh, I think that was one of the reasons he was very limited in his appearances besides being burned out. He, he essentially became a professional golfer. He, he, he sold his uh, likeness for, um, for, for golf clubs and, and other endorsements. So uh, that's another reason. Mm. Uh, the reality, though, Clay, isn't it, these days at, at the top level of amateur golf, certainly from what we see here in Australia, what we saw at the Asia-Pacific Amateur Championship at the back end of last year, Suo, who you've caddied for a few times as well, the reality for, for the likes of the Todd Sinnets and the Ryan Ruffles and the Suos, they're essentially touring pros in waiting, aren't they? They, they, play a, they have a schedule, they map out where and when they're going to... It, it's the same as being a tour pro, but you just don't get paid any cash at the end. Well, and they get a big chunk of money from Golf Australia to pay for it. So, uh, Sue, I think, gets $100,000 this year to go and play in America and, and Minji do the same. So, there's incredible funding for amateur golfers here. Uh, yeah, it's... I just want, that, that surely must be 
a disincentive to the notion of a career amateur because these kids have grown up with it. There is no such thing as a career amateur. If you're at this level, then clearly the only thing you're going to do is play golf for a living or at least try to. That, I suppose that's what it seems to me. But, you know, players like that are clearly good enough to be pros. It's just that, you know, you know there are local pennant players who play number one for the club pennant team who think they're good enough to be golf pros and they just they come and go in a year. Mm. Disappear. Yeah, do you want to get into the sticky issue of whether the pros should be playing pennants in that case? That's got you mm. into quite a frank and open exchange of ideas with some people down here on a golf forum about the Golf Victoria decision recently. Yeah, that the pros I'm tired of arguing about that one. Yeah, <laughs> it does seem to have a circular nature to it. I uh, think well, they completely missed the point of why I suggested <clears> it in the first place. But anyway, yeah. that's okay. That's okay. Uh, you're in the Hall of Fame, and they're not, so you must be right. Uh, um, <laughs> And far from being right. No, no, I just think someone should put put the case. I, I'm not sure if it's right or wrong, but I think someone should make the case that when Penn and Golf, for those who don't know, is a big club competition in Melbourne where all of the best players have always played it. Peter Thompson played Penn for years as a junior and Bob Shearer and all the great Victorian players. And there's now a rule that clubs can have two pros if their members play for the Penn team. So some clubs have decided not to adopt that rule. And I, Others have got pros playing, and I, I think it will evolve eventually into a competition where pros who are members play, and it'll come to a head when Jeff Ogilvie comes back to Melbourne in probably three or four or five years' time to live, and there's a chance that he would play, and because that's really where it started. We were talking about it at Hoylake in 2006 with Dale Lynch, his coach, about the notion of pennant and Jeff said it was some of the most fun he had playing golfers, playing in the interstate teams matches in Australia and Pennant, and that it would be good if they had some pros playing. So that was where it really started. But my argument has always been, well, tell me it's a bad thing that a young kid in Victoria gets a chance to play either in a team that Jeff's a part of or gets to play against the US Open champion in a Pennant match. And maybe rolling, which is great for us in the press. What a headline that would be. So someone who thinks that's a bad idea is looking at golf from completely the wrong perspective, I think. Yeah, indeed. It's funny, some of the pros, I oh, this is very Australian-centric, Jack, sorry about this, but I asked Marcus Fraser about it at the Masters, and he was quite excited by the process. He said, obviously, the problem for the touring pros is they're just not here most of the time. But he said if the situation ever arose and he was asked to play, I can't remember who he played for, Marcus Fraser, what? but he was very excited by the prospect of maybe getting to play pennant again. I was quite, I was quite surprised at how interested he was. Yeah. Well, I mean, everyone has a, everyone loves the competition. It's it's, it's great fun, and it's, um, it's as Peter Thompson said in a speech once. It's the first time in your life when you learn to play under pressure. Mm-hmm. Now it's seven players in a team. It's three matches all, and your match goes down the nineteenth. And if you lose, you, your team loses. And if you win, your team wins. And he said, he said it was the first time I was really nervous on a golf course. Yeah. Not that I think Peter Thompson ever got particularly nervous. <laughs> he's probably like the duck clates. It looks, looks all calm on top of the water, but he's paddling underneath and, yeah. <laughs> and feeling all the same emotions. It was one of the things champions do. They're just as nervous as everybody else, but nobody can tell. Yeah, he made it look very simple. Yeah, yeah indeed. We'll see what happens with the, the pennant argument there, but interesting stuff. So we'll see what unfolds with the, the European Tour and the PGA Tour of Australia. I'm going to try and get some more details about that today. It only broke sort of late last night. Australian Times has been a lot on that on the uh, the Australian news wires this morning. Clay, uh, Shaq, on to something with Jordan Spieth winning at the weekend, which was fantastic, by the way, and the Australian Open champion, and just a fantastic young man. He really did uh, impress me when he was down here in Australia and at the Australian Open last year. And sort of people started talking about the Masters. There doesn't feel to me like there's been a terrific amount of anticipation about the Masters yet. It's, yeah. be, it's only three weeks away. Why do you think that uh, you don't have the 
the the master's excitement brewing? I'm, What's I'm, I'm not sure. It just doesn't seem to have been in the. I suppose it started the build up last week. I know you've been linking to a few masters teasers in the last week or so, but it, it feels like maybe I'm just getting. It feels like in previous years the excitement started mm. earlier, but maybe I'm wrong about that. What's your take? Uh, it's possible that you're correct. That maybe the the kind of nonstop uh, golf and the lack of a refresh maybe that's contributing to it uh i'm starting to sense it i guess i last week did sort of crystallize things when you had uh some good players contend and i think uh maybe man maybe the way the golf has been on the pga tour the last few weeks is uh i that it has me more excited for the masters just because we've we've sort of seen these uh some key players who have a chance to win there battle tested in Pretty tough conditions, which I don't normally enjoy, but uh, I, I enjoy it for the purpose of handicapping the Masters because you're getting to see people playing under pressure on firm and fast uh, greens and stuff they're going to see at Augusta instead of just the usual scoring barrage uh, that you can get sometimes in Florida. But um, I don't know how that'll go this week. The greens don't sound like they're very, very, uh, very good at. Bay Hill, but shaggy was um, the word, wasn't it? Shaggy. Yeah, shaggy well, <laughs> I mean, I, you don't go by what their idea of shaggy <laughs> after right. the last few weeks, where they've been pushing thirteen in the mornings, and and uh, I mean, Doral, they looked like they had that sort of marble effect of the grass had kind of shut down from the cold, and they were just so so quick. So I I don't know how much um, I can you can really point to. The way the Florida swing's gone, but I, I'm I'm feeling the excitement just because I feel like uh, the dozen or so players who really legitimately have a chance to win the major, uh, the Masters of that group, quite a few are are showing good form. Uh, you know, by, and I I really do think, and as I'm actually kind of curious what Clates uh, thinks of this and what you think, but um, I I feel like. Augusta has reverted back to the way it was before they really started messing around with the course where only about a dozen or so players legitimately have a chance to win. Just you feel like that combination of power and the ability to putt uh, has sort of come back to being the the thing that's more important than anything. And I like that element to it, um, that that it, it rewards those two things the most. I always liked that identity of the Masters. Is that uh, Claych? Do you do you see that? The power, yeah. Like well, you know, Nicholas obviously dominated. And Palmer, were power, incredibly powerful player. Snead, Norman, Norman really kind of dominated the Masters without ever winning it, I suppose, which is the odd character of his career. Uh, and, uh, clearly, the putting is incredibly important. When you go there, you just see how difficult the putting is. But I think, I mean, Nick Fowler would say that the putting is totally dependent on where you hit your iron shots. Yes. So you always had to be a, a really good iron player to play well, I would have thought, too. So, so it's, a, it's the ultimate, well, it's one of the ultimate tests in golf is playing well there. Hmm. I mean, Rod, I wonder whether your feeling it's not as exciting as it has been in the past is what Tiger's up to. The fact that Tiger's probably not going to play and is. That's some some sort of dancer on uh, how you feel about the tournament coming in. Do you think? Or yeah, it could be. I suppose, well, I suppose yeah, I've kind of grown up, I guess, with Tiger being you know the main guy. So that whole thing has been interesting over the last few years as he's sort of faded. It just doesn't seem to be as much Masters, but but perhaps I haven't been going looking for it. I'll be honest with you, I've been no, busy, I... busier this year than I have been in previous uh, years. You have been, but I've. 
I have sensed a similar sentiment from some people, and I, I think Clates is right that it's not only Tiger, but you don't really feel like Mickelson's um, gonna is clicking right now. He really needs something when on the West Coast to play well in to, to kind of give him a, a boost. But you never, you know, he he can flip a switch too, and you never know with him. It should be exciting though, Shaq. I mean, the potential for oh, him yeah. to win the career glance. We should be have been talking about this for the last six months, and we've sort of been mentioned, but it hasn't. That really hasn't got any traction, has it? That that no. potential McElroy achievement. When when Woods had the chance to do that, it was huge news constantly until it happened. But McElroy's kind of got off light in a way in that sense, in that, you know, it hasn't been at every question at every press conference, you know, what are you thinking about the Masters? Or has it? Maybe I've missed it. I don't know. Uh, he's been asked a little bit. But, uh, no, the career Grand Slam element is interesting because uh, certainly it, it's now a big deal for Mickelson every year at the U.S. Open mm. for as long as he'll play. Mm. And... When you think how few people have accomplished it, it really is uh, a, an incredible achievement, especially at his age, to to do it. So, I think you'll get plenty of that in the build-up, especially if Tiger doesn't play. All the focus will go to to Rory and and uh, people like Bubba and Jordan Spieth and Dustin Johnson, Jason Day. Uh, those that that select group that I I feel like the course just uh, really favors them now again. I think uh, that group will naturally welcome all of that attention mm-hmm. going to uh, to Rory, and I, I, it seems like Rory's feeling it. The uh, the big club toss and and just kind of the the spotty play at the moment, um, and the um, excitement to Instagram photos of himself in the gym uh, more than anything uh, <laughs> it suggests that uh, he's not totally locked in yet. Uh, yeah, well, I, I wanted to ask you about the putter toss, and I wanted to ask you about. In fact, there's a thousand things I wanted to ask you about as you've been talking there, but we can't, uh, we can't no. uh, cover them all. Clates, you're uh, you mentioning the back end there, and it's, it is an interesting question, the Adam Scott putter question. You always said, Clates, that uh, Adam Scott would go away from the broomstick, back to the short putter, and he'd be fine. So he turned up at Durrell, and that was exactly the case. I think he was eighth or twelfth in the strokes gained putting stats yeah. with the the yeah. Odyssey yes. and the the claw grip. <laughs> And then he turned up last week at uh, the Valspar and putted horribly. Finished, I think, 136th out of the field of 145. Clayton, some thoughts on Adam Scott and the short putter. And will he use it as a, at Augusta? Do you think he has hinted that he'd be quite happy to pull out the broomstick for the Masters? Not sure. It was interesting, obviously, those two weeks, the, the contrast in. Mm. I didn't see much of the second week, but he was brilliant the first week with the putter and horrible the second week. It's by the sound of it. So it's going to be interesting watching to see what he does there. And I'll tell you what I was surprised by, Shaq, which is probably a bit silly. It's not the sort of thing I normally get into. He, he is titleist, Adam Scott, internationally, and he's using an Odyssey putter. What's going yeah. on there? How does that yeah, work? Yeah, no, nothing from the uh, Scotty Cameron mm. uh, family. Well, I'm sure he's not required to, and he's going to go by whatever looks beautiful to him and uh, pretty and solid and all that stuff that players look for in a putter. But, um, yeah, I, I think he – I you know, titleist uh, – they, I f- sense more than other manufacturers, have always had a better sense that of of, of the n- the negative press you can get from forcing one of your players into a club that uh, brings down their game. That that ultimately they are much more interested in you uh, uh, wearing their their hat, using their bag, playing their ball. And whatever gets you into the hole, obviously they would love for you to be using their irons and driver. And I don't even know what his arrangement is on how many clubs he's required to play. But I've just sensed more than other companies, they 
have an awareness that ultimately, uh, uh, and it sounds ridiculous to be saying this, but ultimately it's about the player being happy, comfortable, and playing great golf because ultimately they really care mostly about you playing the ball and winning with the ball. And some of the other companies are a little less forgiving, and I, I assume that's probably because of their longevity in the game and they've experienced enough players coming and going and seeing enough players make forced switches that uh, not only backfire for the player, but ultimately the, the hardcore fan watching goes, well, ever since he went to the so-and-so, he stunk, and then they blame the, the equipment, even though we know that isn't necessarily always the case. So uh, I, I, mean, I think it's great, for, good for them that they have that view because um, it's, there's just nothing worse than when you get that. I mean, look at, look at Rory with Nike. Look how even though they didn't force him to do anything with the with those clubs he felt the pressure to put everything in the bag and as has um you know tiger was very careful not to let them do that to him uh, when he switched well he went sort of almost one club at a time didn't he he, he did he was very irons, <laughs> was really first, gradual then irons that's right and then he went through yeah and, uh, and that worked out very well for both sides yeah, absolutely it did. And by, you know, of course, he finally relented and switched to the Nike putter after the great incident of, uh, of 2009. But he used the Scotty Cameron for, I think, one putter for all 14 major wins, was it? Or 13 of the 14? He used the, the same yeah. Scotty Cameron putter, that I think. Right. Yeah, so, uh, so it'll be interesting. And, of course, I suppose the thing is, Clates, that nobody's going to photograph Adam Scott holding up his putter at the end of winning a tournament, are they? It's going to be the trophy with the title stat, so... That, Odyssey, yep. not, they're not going to get the money shot, so to speak, Odyssey, I guess, from uh, from out of that. That's interesting, that, that whole... What was the, what were the endorsement arrangements and the manufacturer's arrangements like when you played the tour, Clates? It, it seems we've gone to a much more whole bag deal than we used to, say, 20 or 30 years ago. It wasn't uncommon, I wouldn't have thought, in your area, for a player to use a driver from one manufacturer, irons from another, putter from another, and maybe even a different ball, but we don't seem to see so much of that these days. Nobody ever told you what woods to use. You just found the driver that you could use, and there was never a hint... I mean, I played with Spalding for a long time and the deal was just use the three iron to the nine iron, not even the wedges so, wow. because they were such specialty clubs that you're always searching for a decent sandwich and if you found one that you loved, then you didn't care where it came from. Same with the wood, same with the putter. So really it was only the irons that people cared about, at least in the case of players in Australia. And then... I switched to ping and that you had to use 11 clubs with ping and you got paid more if you'd used 12, 13 or all 14, which was difficult in the case of ping because it meant you had to use that horrible driver, which a couple of guys did, but but you had to use 11 clubs with ping. But now it seems like most companies, uh, the players are using all 14 of them. Having said that, they're much better at making, well, everyone makes good woods now and everyone makes good wages because... Roger Cleveland, who we must get on the show one time. We, should, we need to get Roger Cleveland talking about clubs. But Roger Cleveland invented the beautifully shaped modern wedge and everyone's just copied that. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's much easier to play with one company's clubs now because they all make good-looking clubs. But, I mean, Spalding, in my time, could never make a decent-looking wood. And you know, there, there were companies that were good at one things, but you know, one sort of clubs but not others. So players switched up their clubs a lot more than they do now. I suppose for those of us of a certain age, Clades, I mean, yes, you can't fault the equipment these days. I mean, technically and in all ways, it is all fantastic, but it's somewhat homogenous too, isn't it? That you'll never again get a player who finds a driver at the age of 18 and goes, you know what, I'm going to use that for the next 40 years and never changes it. That's you, Some romance has been lost from the game, it seems to me, with that switch. Well, Sam Snead, I think, used the same driver for 40 years until he broke it. And Nicholas, I think the same 
three woody pretty much his whole career. I mean, that's just they're, they're always trying to stick new stuff in your bag now. Mm. Yeah, well, they have to. That's right. And I remember Norman. I think Norman carried the same. It was a metal three wood, but he carried the same metal three wood for at least fifteen or twenty years. I remember watching him still using it at the Australian Open at Royal Sydney in '99, the year Baddeley won. He hit it. It was a Marriman club, I think. Yeah, it was. There was something. Marriman three wood. He did have that for. He had McGregor Woods for a long time. He, had, mm. he always had the best-looking McGregor drivers, but yeah. that was a Merriman through. He, he used that for a long time, that Wood. Mm. Hit it through the back of the 16th green on Sunday that year at Royal Sydney, and that might have ultimately been part of the difference between him and Baddeley winning. But anyway, that's all by the by. Uh, and there you go. Just on Augusta um, Shack, we saw Dustin Johnson come back in amazing fashion. I wanted to get your thoughts on Durrell. Well, let's start with Durrell, actually. The criticism of the golf course... Again, this year, it was sort of last year, everyone sort of said, oh, you know, it's new, so we give it a bit of a pass for not liking it. Uh, we didn't hear much less criticism <laughs> this year. What was your take on the JB home shot that, uh, I mean, you hit a 7-iron into the first green, which is insane, oh. it was nearly 600 yards, but yeah. didn't hold the green. Uh, Got to say, even I thought that looked a bit funky. I know you don't have the right to go for the green, but a green that doesn't hold a 7-iron seems harsh, is it? Well, I... Uh, <laughs> And then the I, fact that he, he virtually couldn't – he had trouble placing the ball on that slope that goes down to the water. That seemed extreme too. The ball would ver barely hold on the – Yeah, on the well, that was a different issue. And that was an issue last year that was a much bigger problem there. The lake banks were uh, not stopping any ball. And this year they stopped quite a few. It was that perfect sort of in-between place where you didn't feel like they uh, manipulated it too much. And, and uh, uh, But on the first hole, you, you – <laughs> The, well, the, the green was very qu quick, very firm, but uh, Adam Scott and Henrik Stenson both, of course, eloquently laid out the case that you, you, are, you are not entitled to be able to play the shot exactly as you want to play it, that, that good design actually does sometimes force you to choose a different route to the hole than the one you think is most comfortable for your game. Um, that said, I, I you know there, there, his angle was not perfect on that shot. Uh, there was a v if you saw the wedge shots into the green, uh, you wanted to be coming in from the right side, and obviously where you, he couldn't hit his tee shot 490 yards, you can only hit it 340. Yeah, that's right. Um, so there's that. I, I just I don't know. I found the whole thing rather uh, silly that that was his uh, take, but it's not totally surprising because you just you talk to certain players and that is their view of golf architecture that it is there to support their demonstration of their shots as they feel comfortable and uh, as they see them fitting the hole um, that idea that you look at the hole location and say okay ooh, you know what today i actually even if i hit a 350 i can't go for it i've got to lay up short right, and then I have this great little easy pitch in, that concept to them is foreign. And um, that's not unusual, right, Clates? I mean, there's always been that view of players, a sort of entitlement that, that well, look how we have all greens back to front. That's a, that's a product of, of players feeling that they are entitled to hit a shot on a green and have it hold. Yeah. Well, if they don't have to hit it short or... Um, except maybe that they're going to hit it long and chip backwards. That just isn't something that they can comprehend. Yeah, no, players don't. They need to play more tournaments on the old course to figure out the game's not about them and you know, think a little more than just hit it where the tour staff tell you. They tell me that Donald Trump went ballistic on Thursday night. He did, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> I heard that. Yes, he he uh, he was not pleased with the low scoring, which uh, which was uh, not surprising either. But it also was great because how could you? Yeah, the players are coming in and complaining. And I mean, Bubba's complaining. I can't play the golf course. I can't play it. It's too hard for me. After shooting sixty nine, I've just never heard of such a thing. Uh, that's a bit Bubba, though, really, isn't it, yeah. Shaq? I mean, he needs to bit. make things interesting for himself to stay interested, it seems to me. It's probably why he loves Augusta National so much. You're like a kid in a playground. You can hit all these crazy shots and, of course, allows you to do it. So, although I do take you back. What were your thoughts on Darrell, Clates? You would have watched it on TV, as did I. What, were your th- what was your take from the, the course and sort of the tournament? Really, it beat some players up badly, didn't it? Yet others um, can't. Dude, it's, hard, it's hard to tell. I mean, I've never – well, I've been there, but I've – I haven't seen a new course, so it's hard to hard to tell what it's like. I mean, I mean, what's your view of the work that Gil did there? Do you think it was compromised, Jeff, by Trump and what he wanted? Did Gil get to do exactly what he wanted, or did Trump want something that Gil would not have done elsewhere? Or how, how do you? No, I think Gil's there? very. Oh, Donald wants it hard, and he wants it to be uh, the blue monster again, and all that, but. Uh, I, I was just stunned listening to the comments and seeing some of the stuff. Last year, obviously, they had the, the, the new greens had that new green firmness that is brutal, that just doesn't even hold the most perfect shot with a ton of spin. They had more thatch on the greens this year. They definitely held shots. Um, of course, we talked about this last year, I believe. The, the concept of landing the ball short of the green is apparently uh, also not an option to today's players. And yeah. Um, I saw a few more people do that this year, and I saw a lot of good shots hit and hold. Uh, that was what I looked for on television. And then I, the other thing, I was looking at the Lake Banks to see how they performed, and I saw a lot of balls stop midway, which was great. A few still went down. But if you go out on the course, Clates, the, the biggest issue really is that, it's first, it's a big course. It's big in scale. But uh, uh, they should like that. There's, there's room to hit driver. What, what you notice, though, is it, it is very – uh, windy there. It always has been. And I think ultimately it still comes back to how much today's players are not great at factoring in wind and dealing with wind. And uh, you hear Rory come right out and say he doesn't, he doesn't like playing in the wind. And I don't think he's unusual in that sense. Mm. I seem to distinctly recall Tiger Woods hitting three iron off that 18th tee one year when he had a two-shot lead. Shaq, am I right about that? The 18th tee at Durrell? He left the driver in the bag and hit three iron off the tee and essentially yeah, played as a laid up par five. Right. It was, uh, You're right. Yeah, he, was... And then he laid up again. And, uh, and everybody, that was great. I loved it. Uh, but but a few people that thought that was a sign of uh, weakness in the design. And then, then you think, wow, no, that's the player um, being intelligent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you're going to question wow, this bloke's that's... strategy, then you really are off the mark. He does seem to know what he's doing, certainly at that time. Clay, it's a, the broader question, which I think I was sort of trying to get at probably clumsily on the last episode of the show, is the importance of courses that are different and uh, sort of lend themselves more to the type of golf that I suppose we like and find more interesting, where width is is far more predominant than just sort of narrow fairways and the hack-out rough. I mean, watching the Valspar last week... It, you're just this constant diet of lob wedges from 10 feet off the green, you know, to or even three feet off the green to hack it out of that thick rough. And courses that showcase golf that's different, the setup is really important because a lot of people would have walked away, particularly after watching JBM struggling to get his ball to stay on the bank when he took his drop after 
hitting the green. If you accept that that's you know not such a bad thing necessarily, but for golf more broadly, it doesn't help in the education or the promotion of the notion that golf can be all sorts of different things. That it shouldn't it shouldn't be a game of narrow fairways and high rough around all the greens. Does that is my point making any sense there? Well, I I saw one ridiculous shot last week. I don't remember who hit it, but it was a it was a maybe a nine under or wedge into a into a green that. And there was the ball carried the bunker, but got stuck in the six-inch long rough between the bunker and the green. There was a yard or maybe a yard and a half of thick rough between the bunker and the green. I mean, I don't, what is the point of that? Surely you cut the bunker up to the edge of the green like they do on the sandbelt in Melbourne, or, or you you have a short fringe, maybe a foot wide, but to carry a bunker and finish up in, a, in six inches of rough just seems utterly. I mean, doesn't it, don't the greenkeepers look at that and go? Isn't there a better way to do this? I don't get how people think that cutting a golf course that way makes golf interesting or fun. Or what's the point of the bunker ultimately if you carry the bunker but you're still in the rough? It just makes no sense on any level that that, that sort of setup. But it seems like it's a peculiarly American thing. Really, you don't ever see that in Australia or really in on the European tour unless you're playing on a course that's just a copy of a. Uh, the way the American courses are set up, which is increasingly the case. I was going to say, it's more prevalent these days than it was 30 yes. years ago, wasn't it? What do you so, think? You know, it's just such a stark contrast to the way I grew up playing golf in Melbourne, where there was shaved banks and short grass and bunkers cut right to the edge of the green. Then you see a guy hitting a wedge into a green and carrying the bunker and finishing up in rough. is just, what is that about? It just seems so ridiculous to me. Anyway, it's, that's the way they do it and, Perhaps there's a place for that once a year, but it seems like it's more common than that. Yeah. I guess the broader question, Jack, is the impact of that on the game more generally. I mean, there's professional golf and there's golf, and, you know, often never yeah. the twain shall meet. But it is the showcase of the game. And if if on the odd occasion when we do seem to get a golf course like Royal Melbourne or Riviera or Doral where it's different to that often week-to-week, you know, constricted fairways, dictatorial sort of golf – if that golf doesn't, if the setup of the course doesn't allow that golf to be as interesting as it can be, it, it sort of damages the game, doesn't it? Broadly, I think that's what I'm trying to say. It's, it's upsetting when Doral is set up in a way that, for the casual fan, makes it look a bit silly. Well, I, I would counter that uh, things have gotten a lot better in that sense in terms of setup. So we've made a lot of progress the last few years in people recognizing that that is not a positive thing. I don't think that the setup from talking to the people who were there was a problem. I think the setup last year was poor and they, they actually uh, changed who did one of the nines. And uh, just in speaking with Gil and Jim Wagner, they were very pleased with the way they set up the course, the whole locations, the, the widths. They generally felt like the tour did a very good job and they made sure on that in that first round to have it set up in a way that uh, in case the wind got really strong that it didn't get goofy so they were they were pleased with the setup the donald of course complained just because of uh, the scoring but uh, i i would agree with you that those things are definitely a negative on the game but i i would also say i, I feel like we're we're seeing fewer of those uh, those those kind of goofy setup things the only place where we continue to seem to have an issue and and, and it has been with green speed this year mm. And uh, not anticipating uh, what the modern agronomist can do with with uh, turf, and uh, it's uh, it's it's so impressive. But it's also to the point where 
uh, we've just had some architecture be a lot less interesting be simply because of green speed, not fairway widths or rough or anything else. You've reminded me of something I wanted to ask Clates about. Clates, I was speaking to somebody this week who's played a fair bit of golf at Bonnie Doon and made a criticism along these lines. The new greens that Clayton has done um, are so uh, funky, I think might have been the word, that you can't, ha- <coughs> you can't have the greens run at 14. Well, thank God for that. <laughs> well... I was no, going to no, say, no, can no, you give no. me an educated response, please, that well, we can hand just... out to people as to why running the greens at 14 isn't necessarily great for golf, even if as a scratch marker you find it fantastic? Yeah, I just, I mean, it, I mean and Australia led that. I mean, Jeff, you put that those stats up on your site a couple of years ago, the USGA step meter readings in America in 1977 were the fastest green was open at 9.8. So, I mean, Australia, Claude Crockford led the way. I mean, he had greens at 14 at Royal Melbourne in 1972. I think we spoke about this last time. But mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm so happy you can't run those greens at 14 because what a stupid pace to run greens at. And, and on a flat green, the average member can't two-putt a green that's running at 14 from 40 feet. So why would you possibly want to – when people complain that uh, Mike Clayton builds courses for pros, which is such a stupid, you know, weak argument anyway, but – most Surely you get your courses, don't they? Sorry? Most pros hate your courses, don't they? Well, They're not that, fair. But surely, you know, the, the worst thing you can do for amateur golf is to set greens up at crazy paces. We played at my club Metropolitan last week in a medal and the greens were 13 and when the average member three putts seven times around and they can't do any better than that. So I just don't get to, I'm so over these 13, 14 speed. They're so ridiculous. It's craziness. Now, it's time we went back to Ten and nine and you know, maybe eleven, but I was going to say, what would what would you think would be a, a good speed to run the greens at Bonnie Doon? Those who aren't familiar, obviously, won't realise. But there's some fairly uh, big sweeping undulations on the the new yeah, greens at Bonnie Doon. What would be a good speed? Well, those greens should run at 10, ten, nine or ten. They're fine. Hmm. So the interest in the putting is not in the speed, but in the in, in the contour. In the so contour. if you run the contours, so if you run the speeds at so if you run the greens at sensible speeds, then the interest is in negotiating the brakes on the greens that of course not every green is crazily undulated either there are a couple there are two or three but there are a bunch of greens that are quite flat mm. so um, it's yeah but it, it, it's a substrate an obsession with speed and it's just people see that greens that are running at nine or ten as being too slow and somewhat deficient when they don't see the interest in the contour so is it an obsession of good players as well, Clayton? It seems to me that the lower the handicap, the more likely somebody is to um, sneer at the notion of greens that don't run fast. That you know, you know, only only choppers want to putt on, putt on greens that aren't you know super slick. Good players want to putt on super fast greens. It's certainly the case on tour, week in and week out. The greens are super quick. But is it more good players you think, uh, or do you sense it from the the guys who can't putt those greens but still want them? Well, I think it's committeemen often who are under pressure from. Good players. I mean, there's one player at my club who thinks that you know, the only way to defend the golf course is to have fast greens, which is completely blue. And of course, there's the combination of speed and how firm they are. Mm. So if you have Royal Melbourne at Women's Open where you have great speed with incredibly hard greens, I mean, you can have great speed and soft greens, you can have hard greens that are slowish. So, so, so it's how you combine the firmness with the speed. And so having s- soft, fast greens is kind of playable, well, it's certainly more playable than rock hard and 14. Mm. So, I mean, the perfect greens to me are hard and 10, which, which is what Bamboogle are. Mm. 
Bambuchula fescue and they're, they're hard and nine or ten and the interest of Bambuchula is in the contours, not, not the pace. Mm. So it's a, you know, it's a tricky, well, well, it's not a tricky combination to put out there, but for me it's get them firm and run them at a reasonable pace, as in nine or ten or eleven, but this obsession in Australia and increasingly the rest of the world with 13 is just madness really. Speaking of 13, the 13th at Barnboogle is one of the more controversial greens on the course, of course, and it's amazing, big, massive undulations on that green. I reckon I've been to Barnboogle three times. I reckon all three times the people I've been with, we've stopped at that green for as long as possible till the group behind arrived on the tee just to putt it from all different angles because it's fun. And Well, people kind of forget that notion. That, well, could, yeah. It's more and more they're increasingly obsessed with what score they have and they've lost the notion perhaps... Well, the people who lose the notion of golf as essentially a game and something to be enjoyed and something that's fun mm-hmm. won't like a green like that because it interrupts their succession of threes and fours. But for those people who think golf is fun and to be enjoyed in a game and there's nothing wrong with something quirky like that green once in a while where you know it's kind of crazy but it's great fun and interesting and, and, and you've really got to control what your ball does off the tee. You've got to land it in the right spot with the right shape and, and, and have the ball feed to the hole. Mm. Does everyone want to play par threes forever where you just tee the ball up and hit it on the green that stops near the hole and you putt and you go to the next hole? I mean, surely golf has enough of those holes. With it. So it goes back to the point of the, no, the concept of landing your ball short of the green. More importantly, I think the concept of golf is fun, Shaq. Do we hear enough about golf as fun <laughs> as a concept? We seem to talk about golf in all sorts of terms. Not many of them are fun. Can tour pros have fun playing golf? No, they're making their living playing the course. So anything that interferes with that, they find to be, I think, uh, I don't know if offensive is the right word, but they don't like it. And uh, and I understand that mentality. But again, I think we've made progress in the last few years in, in the, on that front in, in getting them to understand uh, that some of these elements are there to help single out who the better player is. And once they understand that, that, that you, you feed their ego a little bit, then they, then they view it as an enjoyable challenge. But it does have to be explained to a, to a lot of players. And, and understandably, I mean, we've all been there in the, in when you're in the heat of competition and, and some architects put something there that, that uh, gets in your way, you, you, you naturally take it a little personally. Mm. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. If you've been a Royal Melbourne, what... When Mackenzie built that golf course in 1926, what speed do you think he saw those greens running at? Probably seven and a half to eight at, yeah. at the most. And c- certainly not 13 or 14. No, no. Which was a speed that was unimaginable at that time. So, so yeah. you know, I, I, I think there's an argument to say that the clubs have got so, f- especially at the older courses, have got so far away from how the original designers saw those greens playing and running. And, and, and not to single out Royal Melbourne is because it's such a great golf course, but you know, there are lots of courses around the world where you know, the, the greens were not built for the speeds that they putted at. Have you ever played yeah. Royal Melbourne at 7 or 8 or 9 or 10, Clates? And what was the experience I, like? I reckon I've played it at probably 9. And it's tremendous. As, as long as the greens are firm, it's, it's great. For, it's, it's a great way to play the golf course. It's brilliant. Mm. Yeah. There's a green at Royal Sinkports, Clates. I'm sure you would have played there. I can seem to recall from my dim memory of 1997. It's, it's almost like a skateboard half pipe. Am I remembering oh, correctly? Uh, is, it, is that three or, number three? 
Maybe. And I remember with BJ, the editor at Golf Australia, which Clates and I both write some stuff for, Clates every month, me occasionally. Uh, we, were, we were there on our uh, trip to the British Open. I reckon we spent 40 minutes on that green, just putting the balls up the sides and seeing if you could get it. To, just like kids. And it was, I don't know. We don't, I don't know whether we have enough of that in golf anymore where, where you can have that sort of fun. And it's partly uh, because of that. Um, last thing I wanted to touch on with you in particular, Shaq, uh, Rory McIlroy, you mentioned the club toss and, you know, not in the greatest form, but a good grinding performance, I thought, at Doral from him. It's going to be interesting to see him at Bayhill for the yeah. first time this week, which is almost interesting in itself, isn't it? First time he's played Arnie's tournament. Ah, oh, well, it fits his schedule and uh, it was nice of him to uh, make the comment <laughs> that he, that he uh, considering Arnold's place in the game, I can't believe I haven't played here before. That's great. You know, that's why people love him that he, that he says that. Um, I don't, I don't care for Bay Hill as a master's uh, uh, test, pre-master's test, especially if the greens are a little slower and softer, like they're supposedly going to be this year. It sounds like the rough, they, they put out a press release about uh, doing some widening work, but a, the first article I read suggested the the course is as narrow as ever and the rough is as lush as ever. So I, I But it's worked well for Tiger as a place to prepare and other people, so um, I... But it's not my uh, it's not my favorite week of golf watching. Let's put it that way. Yeah, indeed. Clay, I wanted to get your take on the Rory Club toss too. Have you, we, I know you've had a bit of a temper on the course, but you a club chucker. Well, I've thrown a few in my day. Yeah, I think Bobby Jones had a great quote about throwing clubs about golf being able to evoke enough emotion in a man that occasionally he's got to let go of a club, something like that. But I mean, I, look, I'd, I'd be the last to criticize someone for throwing a club. But I thought he did it with some grace and some style, but some humor. You know, it was what it was, and probably what saved him was. And, and he came out and he handled it really well. He said, "Look, he said it was a terrible thing for kids to see, and I shouldn't have done it." And he, he, the world moves on. I mean, it, you know, it's, I'm not sure Tiger would have managed it that well. I mean, Huggy had a point. We saw Tiger throw a club into the crowd at Kingston Heath in 2009, and not even apologize. None of the local journalists asking about it, and walk away without. Ever saying a word, and Peter Fitzsimons, who you all know, Rob, but no one else who listens to the podcast, a great sports writer in Sydney, he ripped Tiger for that, mm. and, and I mean that was, I mean that was seriously dangerous. I mean, you know, something that was. He, but in fairness, he threw it into the ground, did he not? Clothes in a fit he of threw peak, it and it, it threw bounced, a drive into the ground, and it bounced into the crowd. Into the crowd, yes, yeah. I mean, no doubt it was dangerous, but it wasn't like a malicious toss it into the crowd. Right. <laughs> Let's see if you yeah. get something. No, I mean, but, but it was. Yeah, it was an out, it was an outrageous thing to do, really, when you compare it to Rory's almost playful love the three on it in the middle of the lake, which is you know. Well, the bigger issue, as I recall, it was it was because it was just so lightly went into the crowd. The, it was the lack of uh, any concern yeah. <laughs> for the people in the crowd that I think was so offensive that he just went and took the club and I, who knows if he even said thank you and then went on his way. Didn't didn't ask Stevie over to give a glove to everybody or. I've got to tell you, uh, he was probably lucky to get it back, Shaq. There's more than one, I know. There's more than one I know. fan in Australia would have been out the gate in a flash if it had landed yeah. near them uh, with that in it. My favourite part of the whole McElroy thing, I thought, Shaq, was the tweet that you sent of the guy, who the wag who'd put the pro tracer on the club as it disappeared. That was beautiful. <laughs> that was just lovely, beautiful, quick thinking. And uh, anyway, there's a whole issue there, I think, as you had the poll about whether Tiger would have got ripped had he done the same thing. But we'll leave all that for another time. I think we better wrap it up for now. We've been at this for uh, for a fair while. Yeah. Um, 
looking forward to uh, to the Mars and looking forward to our chat next yes, time. I'm so working on a guest, we will have a guest on our next show. We I will promise. Ha- we will yes. have a guest. I I cannot reveal the name yet. <laughs> <laughs> what even to us? Now I'm intrigued. You'll have to tell me once we've we've pressed the uh, stop button. Okay. Shaq, great to have your time today. As always, really enjoyed it. Thank you, Rod. And Clay, it's always great to get your thoughts on the game. Thank you, Rod. And congrats again on the uh, the Vic Hall of Fame. I think that's fantastic news. And that wraps it up for State of the Game for this episode. Do hope that you've enjoyed it. We'll be back again to do it all with a guest, according to Shaq, in a couple of weeks' time. Looking forward to that. Looking forward to your company then also on State of the Game. State of the Game is a Talk and Golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.